Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO Show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got Andy Bass with me. And Andy is the founder of Bass Kluska Consulting and is the author of a book, Start With What Works, which is all about growing your business fast, and the author of a book that's just about to be published to follow it up called Committed Action. So hopefully today we can talk about both of those. But Andy, welcome to the Grow CFO Show. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for asking me. Andy, tell me a little bit about yourself, your background. Well, I'm a consultant and a writer these days. I started out as a software engineer and by a very circuitous route, ended up teaching artificial intelligence to psychology students at uh, Aston Business School, which is quite interesting because it was the last thing they wanted to learn. What did they want to learn? <laughs> they wanted to learn about Freud and, you know, child psychology and social psychology and sort of weird unethical experiments, that kind of stuff that you're not allowed to do anymore. I had to figure out how on earth was I going to reach these people. But the thing about it is, when I've ever met students subsequently, I mean, we're going way back now, but whenever I've met students subsequently and said, did we ever teach you anything useful at university? They always said, yeah, it was the computing and the statistics, the two things that they hated the most at the time. Yeah, that stands to reason, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, interesting, the interesting stuff you never get a chance to use in practice. But What got you from that pure psychology piece into working as a consultant, writing business books? That feels like a big leap to me. Yeah, well, I, my, so my background originally, I did computer science and I did ergonomics, applied psychology, especially applied to work. And I worked a little bit for a little while at BT's uh, Human Factors Lab and then came back to university to do research in computing. But my computing research was very much about what happens when you put a computer system into an organization. How does it change the organization? So it was always that kind of interest in organizational things. And the move from the university world to the world of business was really, I was more interested in teaching and communication and than I was in my research. And I really wanted to see if the things that we were working on worked, you know, outside of the university. So it was quite natural to start to do experiments there and start working with businesses. And it, it built from there. Brilliant. And you've got all the way, though, to writing a book all about business growth. So tell me what happened to say, I'm going to write a book. Um, I had a moment of madness. I mean, this is my fourth. And I've got a friend who's a mountaineer. And it, it to me, it seems quite similar. He'll say that he will never sign on for another climb until he's forgotten how difficult the last one was. The yeah. same thing with books. You know, it's wonderful when you write them and you've got the thing in front of you. If for somebody like me who's interested in bringing ideas to businesses that make a difference, then when you write a book, it really helps you to straighten things out and it gives you a way to communicate that to people, to clients and so forth. So it's a natural thing to do. And as painful as it is during the process, it is very rewarding. So Andy, then, a faster way to grow your business, start with what works? Well, that answer for that is going to be different in every business. And in fact, one of the things that I go to great lengths to talk about in the business is how quick we are to look outside the business for like best practices or what I call savior solutions. You know, you think, you know, I need growth. Wouldn't it be great if I just buy somebody that's going to do it for me? Buy a rock star to use the lingo that uh, you hear in recruitment. Or I'll buy this particular 
computer system and that'll be the answer to everything or, or maybe we'll do an acquisition and and while i've nothing against hiring the best talented people and using the right tools and if you know how to do acquisitions then they can work very well for you uh, we know that all these things are very risky as well you know you can hire somebody and they come in and they think they're fantastic because you've hired them as a rock star and then they upset everybody sometimes it doesn't work out and the research actually says rock star hires work out a lot less often than people think so being aware that these kind of quick fixes can be high risk and bearing in mind my experience going into businesses and so often seeing how much resource they had that they weren't using people with answers or products that could be repositioned in different ways or great relationships that could be leveraged with the customers and suppliers so what works for your business it might be very different from somebody else's but it could end up being like a special source and so I want to draw people's attention to the thing that's going to make you stand out, the thing that's going to be different from everyone else, rather than just following everybody's best practices and looking the same as everyone, which won't help you growth. So in the book, Andy, you outline 10 principles. Principle one, recombine existing elements so they create more value. Yeah. Well, let me start with the example that's in the forward of the book. I didn't write, which is uh, Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy Rosie, because I think he gets the idea across. And then I'll give her like a business example. Rory wrote about a, a young woman in Africa who was supporting herself by selling hard-boiled eggs to construction workers. She figured out that if she added one tomato, a few leaves and a few herbs to this egg, she wasn't selling them an egg anymore. Now she was selling them lunch. And the great thing about selling lunch rather than an egg is you could charge more than twice as much for it because lunch is that much more valuable, but it didn't cost her twice as much to put it together. So that's the principle, right? Combining elements in new ways so that they have more value. And one of the early examples I give in the book is Cardinal Health, the American health services provider who was selling commodity, which was surgical instruments. And the problem they had was their competitors could make surgical instruments that were just as good as theirs. And so it was just a pure price competition. And they were thinking of getting out of the business. We've got great relationships with the hospitals. Why don't we watch people using these instruments and see what they do and see what problems they've got and what issues they've got? And they realized that if they combined all these different instruments into a kit, then it saved a whole bunch of problems for the hospital because now the hospital didn't have to have a big cabinet with every instrument in it and hope that on the day that somebody was sent to go and get all the right instruments for a particular operation, that they'd be able to put all the right things on a tray and then have to sterilize them. And what are they going to do if they haven't got the relevant instrument? And then it's very error prone and so on. Instead of doing that, wouldn't it be great if somebody could say, we know what the procedures we're doing today are, we can go online, order a kit, which has been approved by, you know, highly qualified surgeons, everything's sterile, we can use modern manufacturing techniques to make sure that everything's just in time and there's zero errors and everything's hygienic, blah, 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 blah. And they catapulted themselves in that category then to, uh, it's called pre-source. It's a, a brand that stands out well above just selling in these instruments. And what I'm saying is by combining things they already had, the instruments, but also the relationships with the hospital, the online ordering, the manufacturing capabilities into a package, there was a value added there that went way beyond just the sort of breakdown costs and the things that they were selling. So that's a good example of recombining what you've got and creating a lot more value from it. So simply by selling what you're already selling, packaging in a different way, bang, you're really creating value. And let's let's face it, value isn't necessarily just the turnover, it's the profit line. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, I talk about profit amplification or value amplification. The idea is you've got to make sure that the value to your customer is going up faster than the cost, the extra cost of providing that extra. Think about the girl with the eggs. It didn't cost her anything much more just to find a tomato and a couple of leaves. With Cardinal Health, they could charge a lot more because, and this is the key, the better you understand value from the customer's point of view and what they will value, the more the opportunities might be to meet extra uh, requirements that they've got to create more value for them without it costing you as much as you might think extra. That's the key part. You're solving a different problem in the customer's mind, not just here's a scalpel that you can make a nice incision with. It's here's a full set of instruments so we can make sure the operation goes ahead. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I don't know what your experience of this is, but I mean, everybody always says, well, you've got to understand your customer's needs, right? It's very easy to say that. It's not as easy to do it. So you feel often, well, yeah, we've heard that before. You've got to know our customers better than anybody else. That's not very original. But the thing is, well, great entrepreneurs are really good at figuring out how to take fairly limited resources or the resources that they've got to hand and really understand what would mean extra value to the customer. And that's based on, you know, in the Cardinal Health case, they went and really watched what surgical teams were doing. But actually, we've surveyed more than 200 finance leaders and said, well, what's your problem? What's stopping you getting more involved in strategy? What's stopping you designing the strategy? What's stopping you executing the strategy? So once they tell us what the blockers are, we can then design into the bootcamp things that talk directly about those blockers. So getting to know your customers' needs, I think, is very important. And don't just guess at what they are. Get the customer to tell you if you possibly can. I couldn't agree more, and especially on the guessing, because it's so easy to just end up in your own. And did you find that, I mean, the concepts that you're teaching them, I'm going to guess, I mean, there may be some really new and original ones, but quite a lot of that, I'm going to guess, is stuff that people might be able to find elsewhere. All the bits in between, it's the hassles, as you say, that what really makes it difficult during a busy week with everything else I've got going on to actually study this and then make it work for me. Just going on a nice course, going, that was interesting, and then filing the notes away somewhere. That's exactly it. And you know, we'll, we'll talk about SWAT, PESL, Porter's Five Forces, whatever. You can do web searches on all of those and probably find out everything you need to know from a head knowledge point of view. But I need this piece of analysis. I need to go through it with my board or my leadership team. How do I do that in practice? Mm -hmm. How do I get them to engage? How do I get the right information from them? How do I have it once we've got the information? How do I communicate that in a sensible way to the rest of the business? Right. All sorts of questions like that come up. So that's to me what you're about there. Anyway, Andy, principle two, escape from fixed purposes. Yeah. This is back to thinking that you know what your resource does because you think you know what problem it solves. Like you say, you know, that the engineers in particular can get very caught up in this or, you know, or technical people generally can get very caught up in this, that thinking that the most important thing might be, if you go back to the scalpel, you know, how well it cuts. Well, there may be a bunch of different people's scalpels are cut just as well. But what the surgeon might really care about is that it's sterile or that it, it's ergonomic. I mean, as I said to you, I did ergonomics at university. It's a curse to have studied ergonomics because you spend the rest of your life cursing just about every tool, gadget, control panel, you know, everything that's made that's, that doesn't quite work for people. But mm. those businesses that have figured out how to make things work for people, 
in a human sort of way often enjoy a premium. Apple's like the, the absolute poster child for that. So principle two, escape from fixed purposes. Right. It's so easy for us to think our business as being a certain way or our resources to be a certain way. One example, I think it's a very nice one, again, I put in the book is uh, bicarbonate of soda. You can think of it as being baking powder. You can think of it as being fridge deodorizer or at a pinch, it's an indigestion remedy. Now, which is the most valuable of those three? Oh, depends what your problem is. Certainly, if you've got indigestion, you might think the most valuable was the indigestion remedy. But Arm & Hammer packaged the same basic product, the same basic molecule in all of these different ways. And you can often think that you're solving one problem for people, whereas actually you're solving another one. Back to the surgical kits, one of the problems that the surgical kits solves for hospital administrators is their insurance premiums, because that, and that goes to medical errors, right? If you're packaging the instruments and you're delivering them to people in a way where they're sterile and there's not going to be any stock outages, and that when the surgeon goes scalpel or whatever the instrument they need is, it's there, then less accidents, better insurance. And I did actually check with the surgeon. I said, does it ever happen that you say, you know, whatever, you call for an instrument and you've not got it? And he said, it does happen. And then someone's got to start running around the hospital, which is not a good thing, while the patient is still under anesthesia. So understanding the same product or the same know-how could be solving lots of different issues. When I used to work for ICI Plastics, and this is probably not particularly politically correct in these environmental times, but one of the polymers that we made was, was PET, basically the, the polymer that goes into your two-liter Coca-Cola bottle or lemonade bottle or water bottle. And we sold thousands upon thousands of tons of polymer to make those classic two-liter plastic bottles that you see in the supermarket shelves. We realized that the, the cosmetics industry was starting to get interesting, but they didn't want the sort of thin plastic two-liter bottle. They wanted a much smaller bottle, much thicker plastic. So we thought, well, we need, we need to have a grade to sell into the cosmetics industry. And we came up with one. And the lovely difference was we're suddenly selling rather than into bulk liquids, we're selling into specialized for, um, consumer products, really, really nice perfumes and lotions and things like that. So price of a ton of polymer going to Coca-Cola bottles, about a thousand pounds. Price of a ton of polymer going into cosmetic bottles, three thousand pounds a ton because it's got to make these nice thick bottles. They've got to have perfect clarity and so on. What we never told anybody that though the two grades of polymer had exactly the same names, they were actually the same polymer. Andy. Principle three, reverse engineer yourself. Yeah, every business that works is built on layers. And this is sort of computer science thinking, right, that, that made me think this way. If you look at a business like Amazon Web Services would be the absolute classic, right? So Amazon had to build all of this infrastructure in order originally to be able to sell books. But then they realized, hang on, we can use the same technology to sell anything that we can basically list on our website and that can be delivered by the delivery mechanisms that we use. And then they realized, hang on a minute, all the technology on which Amazon is sitting, other people could use that to do e-commerce and computing as well. We could sell them that. And that became Amazon Web Services, which for a long time was the only profitable bit of Amazon. Um, Ocado is another example. So Ocado enters this extremely competitive British grocery market but in order to, to make Ocado work, they had to build 
robotic picking and all the stuff that goes to make that work, that's now something that they've packaged up as Ocado Smart Platform. And there are now supermarkets around the world, Kroger's in the US, Casino in France, Eco in Sweden, that are sitting their online business on top of the infrastructure that Ocado made. I'll give you one more example, which is it's still technology, but it's not digital because it's not just a digital idea, this. Lotus Cars. Lotus developed great expertise in automotive suspensions because they were building racing cars and lightweight sports cars. But they now consult and have done for many years with the, the big OEMs, the big car manufacturers on automotive suspensions. They reverse engineered their success, took elements of it, and then used those in new applications. Principle four, let the world teach you. Well, this is so if anybody's familiar with Lean Startup, and I don't know whether if you Lean Startup been a topic on any of your podcasts. Something we've never actually covered up to now. This is like fairly sort of orthodox in the startup world now, but I think there's many, many businesses can learn from it and benefit from it. And it's all based, for me at least, on a really fundamental principle, which is that people will not accurately tell you what they're going to do in the future. And the problem with that is, therefore, your market research, it could be very suspect. The classic example, there was a dot-com business called Webvan, which in the year 2000, it was one of those dot-com, you know, guy rockets crashed to earth. They raised $800 million from people like Sequoia Capital in Silicon Valley to be the first online supermarket. Like we were talking about Arcado, but, you know, in, in the year 2000, people thought online supermarkets... We've got to be big. We've got to, we can see what Amazon are doing. We want people to say, I'm going to web van my groceries tonight. Like you would say, I'm going to hoover up or, you know, they want it to be completely the generic thing. So they spent all their money on careful market research and all of that. But then they built a robotic picking center. They had these vans that were a particular shape. So you'd see them in the distance. And before you could even see the logo, you'd say, that's the web van. And very clever people. They built this business out and the business just failed because although people had told them in their market research that they were willing to pay a few extra dollars to have their groceries delivered, they didn't actually give them the orders. Just to contrast what happened to Webvan with what happened with Zappos Shoes. Now, people might know Zappos Shoes. It's actually owned by Amazon now. Started as an online shoe shop. What they did was the guys that founded Zappos went to the local shoe shop. They took some photos of some shoes. They put them on a little website. And if you ordered the shoes, they went to the shoe shop and they bought the shoes and brought them around to your house. And they did this to validate what the lean startup people would call a leap of faith assumption. Because if you've got the idea, you think, great, let's sell shoes online. But there's an assumption which could kill the whole idea. The assumption is people will buy shoes without trying them on. Well, when Zappos was founded in the early 2000s, we didn't know whether or not people to do that. Would people order clothes or shoes online, or would it be just be too much of a hassle? Before they spent a fortune, they tested the hypothesis in the real world. Whereas Webvan did their market research, took people's word for it, and invested based on people's word for it. That's what I'm talking about. Andy, that gets us to principle five. Watch what actually happens. Right. Well, I've sort of covered it in a way. It's about building situations that are real or, or requiring people to actually behave rather than tell you what they're going to do. I could certainly relate back to computer science on that one. Right. Designing a new IT system, you'll go try and 
gather requirements from people. Because people haven't seen this new system at all. They can't really articulate what they want. And so the whole ethos of Agile seems to have appeared around that. So, okay, we'll build something. We'll work through this with you. And then once you've got the first bit, take that, tell us what else you want, and we'll work this in iterative stages and get to what you want. Yeah. In fact, that whole lean startup movement was very influenced by the Agile manifesto and all that stuff. And it's interesting. I mean, just to give a, I think it's a very relatable example. I did some work with a trade association and and they were talking about, well, what do our members really want? And the members said, oh, we want continuing education. You know, we want to raise our potential as leaders and have all these kinds of programs and stuff. And so they put these things on, but they always found that the summer barbecue had the best turnout of anything that they put on. Do more summer barbecues. Principle six, find the few things that really make a difference. Summer barbecue must really make a difference. Yeah. This can be about features. I mean, I'll give you a couple of examples, one of which is a product sort of example. And the other one is a bit more of a sort of internal or more of a customer service example. So a friend of mine was doing some work with a call center and we had really sort of bad customer satisfaction. And there was a massive list of complaints about waiting time and the way people spoken to and, and all kinds of stuff. They actually found out they only needed to change two things and it completely turned it around. One of them was to stop people talking in a sing-song voice like they were reading a script. So they gave them some voice exercises like actors use, just a little bit of training so that they finished uh, a sentence with a downward tone of voice, just natural like that, rather than a sing-song. And the second thing was when people didn't know the answer to a question that they would make a commitment. I don't know, but I will phone you back at three o'clock on Wednesday with the answer and then making sure that people did it. And they just changed those two things and all the feedback just completely flipped on the call center. All kinds of training that had been done previously about how you do customer care and, you know, closing techniques and this, that and the other didn't really make much difference, but those two things did. It's the old 80-20 rule, isn't it? Yes. Which crops up in just so, so many different places. Principle seven, use very plain words to describe how you would want things to be. Yeah, instead of maximizing engagement potential. Which means what? Exactly. And I'm sure you've had this experience too. Every business I've ever been in, when you go around and talk to people about the problems in the business, people always say communication. And yet the word communication doesn't actually tell you what you would need to see and hear that would have to be different in the business so that people would feel that the communication was happening. And we use all these long terms, well, the, all the value statements and all this kind of stuff. It doesn't really convey anything. So using plain concrete words, it's really hard if for people who've grown up in management culture where this is the language that's spoken, making that translation into everyday terminology. Just, for example, use a warm downward tone of voice when you're talking to a customer. And if you say you're going to call them back, call them back. I'm not having to talk there about any highfalutin abstractions. Principle eight. Yeah, so looking beyond us and them. You know, one of the most interesting things in organisations is how much work people do to avoid blame. Yeah. I think it's Dave Snowden. I don't know if you've come across Dave Snowden, but he made a, the guy that does Kinevin, the stuff about different ways of understanding what kind of situation you're in and whether it's complex or complicated or so on. He made a really great point, which is the biggest fear in organisations isn't the fear of failure, it's the fear of blame. And we're always looking for somebody else to pin the blame on. And the problem with that is that we're all supposed to be on the same side working for the benefit of the customer. So 
I go into ways to break that down. It's funny that, not funny in a good way either, but if you think about something like Boeing in the 737 MAX, people forget, you know, we are them. Because if you were an engineer who knew that there was a problem on the 737 MAX and you kept quiet because you didn't want to be blamed for or feared perhaps losing your job or being pushed off to the side in the management structure, you yourself were likely one day to be a passenger on that aircraft because it's one of the most popular types. Your family is likely to be a passenger on that aircraft. So there's a narrowing of attention that happens to people to the point where they're so worried about getting the blame for something that they'll act totally irrationally. And so I think leaders have to do everything they can to break down us and them. And I go into various ways to do that. One really nice way is to cross-pollinate sometimes, is to swap people from the us department and the them department and get them to work together. That can work very well to promote understanding. There's a bunch of them. That's one I like very much. That's a, like one to really think about in a lot more detail. One to read the book about. Principle nine, bring customers inside. Yeah. Customers are a tremendous resource. Again, it seems obvious, but when I've said to people, have you spoken to a customer or why don't we ask a customer? They quite often almost seem like, well, can you do that? You are allowed to talk to your customers. One great thing you can do, you know, if you do a town hall meeting, an all hands meeting, and you want people to, you know, you, you've got a message that you want to get across. One of the best ways to get that message across is to bring your customer in and have them tell them. It brings so much more credibility often, especially if you're trying to build trust again, maybe if you've had a situation where trust has been lost. People are very much more inclined to believe a customer sometimes than they are their own managers. So there's a lot of ways to do it. That's a great one. A great example of using customers to help you with your product development is Lego, who have this wonderful adult user community, the adult fans of Lego, who they used to ignore for a long time because they used to have this mindset, we're a toy company for kids. So they ignored all these adults who loved Lego, which is a bit daft given that they had more money to spend on, on Lego and also they understood what makes a good Lego kit. And now they really involve them and it makes a big difference because now the kits are if you know the ins and outs of Lego, it's not my thing. I used to love it, but apparently, you know, there are some things that work really well and make a kit good fun and so on. And they now regard them as a great resource. And just from simple things, get somebody to actually go as a customer to buy your product, find out how they found the experience and so on. And that's the way people will tell you what's wrong. You're saying go and shop in your own business. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Get some quite interesting surprises doing that. Yeah. Principle 10, the last one, give control to get control. Right, which kind of links into the other book in a way as well, because I use that same principle. So this is the idea. If I'm running a workshop sometime, I'm going to give the answer here on live to the internet. So it's going to be, maybe I can't use the exercise anymore, but I'll ask people, how long does it take for a radio signal to get from Earth to Mars? And people get it wildly wrong. You know, people, some people say days, some people say a couple of seconds. It's actually between about 12 and about 24 minutes. It, it depends on where we are compared to Mars. But the reason why this matters is if you've got a Mars rover and you want to control it, then it means that it's going to be 15, 20, 30 minutes there and back for a signal. So you can't do it like a drone. You're watching the video in the driving seat of the rock that you're about to hit. Yeah. But you're seeing that video. Oh, you were about to hit that rock 24 minutes ago. Exactly. It's a bit late to change direction now. 
Exactly. And so the way that you have to do the engineering, you have to put some autonomy into the rover. You have to, it has to be able to detect edges. It has to know that it's up against a rock and be able to maneuver its way. And then you'll learn a little bit later. So why I like this example is it shows that if you want to have a, an organization that is spread out into the world, you have to push decision-making to the outside. You can't have all the decision-making be in the center. Um, so you have to give control to get control. The ideas that I draw on are drawn on from the military ideas, where, again, if you try and have all the command and control from HQ, you'll just the other side can just rings around you. And so they have this idea of mission command, where people know what the overall direction is, and you negotiate with people who are going to be on the edge, on the front line, as it were, to make sure they've got the resources, the tools, the capabilities, and the authority that they need. And you need to build relationships and trust and all that stuff. And I talk about that. But you just cannot be fast enough unless you can give control. You'll just be too slow and you'll be outwitted by faster competitors. And that brings us into a whole other really interesting area. As we've done the strategy survey, as I said earlier, one of the biggest problems in executing strategy is how do I get my people on board? How do I get my people? moving in the right direction? How do I get them changing what they do as their day job and doing some of the things we need to do to execute this growth strategy? You've got your new book that's coming out, I think, next week? That's right. Yes. November the 7th. Committed Action. Why did you write it? Because talking to people about their biggest concerns, having read Start With What Works, was this was the area that had the most energy that people say. The same as you were saying earlier on. It's one thing to figure out what you should do. It's another thing entirely to get that execution to happen. And I go into it, Start With What Works, but I wanted to focus particularly on unlocking your people and getting that engagement. My view is that people don't realize how much you have to join the dots up for your people for them to, in order to get it. And so I give them a very simple formula based in a, to a large degree on what I learned in education as an educator where I had reluctant students. And I had to figure out a way to get their interest. And I found that the techniques that I learned have always been things I've used subsequently in my consulting work. And so it made sense to lay that out for people. And I, I do it in a three step. And it's um, the formula is CEO. So hopefully that'll be easy for people to remember. And what you first need to do is C is curiosity. You have to invite curiosity. This is actually the first time I've done a podcast on this book. Do not worry. CEO. So CEO is curiosity, exploration, and then ownership. Invite curiosity, encourage exploration, and then transfer ownership. And a great way to explain that is to refer back to that film. I guess everybody's probably seen Dead Poets Society, if you remember the Robin Williams film. Yes. Robin Williams had, in a way, the same job that I had teaching AI and leaders trying to get their people engaged have got, which is a bunch of people who could be interested if only the penny would drop. But coming into it, they're scratching their heads. Why should we be interested in this? And on the face of it, Maybe it's not of interest to us. And if you watch the way that Robin Williams engages them, it's a superb model for engagement. He starts off with the curiosity. He gets somebody to read out part of the book, and then he tells everybody to tear the page out of the book. But as soon as you start breaking rules in this sort of theatrical way with a bunch of teenagers, they're interested, 
right? And you have to tailor what you do to different audiences. And then he says to them, what is the purpose of poetry? They, of course, they go, well, we don't know. And he gives an answer which isn't true for everybody, but it's got a high probability of hitting with a bunch of teenage lads. He says, the purpose of poetry is wooing women. Now, that's not what Sylvia Plath was doing. It's not what Allen Ginsberg was doing, but it's pretty interesting to the majority of his audience. So they're like, all right, what do you mean? So we've got curiosity. Then he starts to get them to explore because he starts to give them poems that they can relate to and pretty much they're looking and thinking about it for themselves. And then finally, they start their own club, their own society called Dead Poet Society, which is now their own thing. And he's just supporting them. So he's gone through this three-phase process. That's what I suggest that people do too. And that's what I do when I help them with this, is we have to figure out what will people be curious about. And that means usually learning a bit more about your people than you might currently know. Then we have to get them to explore. And that's where, if you think back to what I was saying with Cardinal Health, you know, and the girl with the eggs, there are exercises in the Start With What Works book, which are all about figuring out what have we got? How do we reverse engineer ourselves? How does that produce value for customers? Oh, I see. You put this and this together and it makes that happen. Getting people to explore those assets that you've already got, we've found has been a really engaging thing to do. And it's very engaging because it's not like you're trying to engage them and G them up. It's based on something that is genuinely interesting, which is how does your business really create value? Once they're interested and they're exploring, then you move to giving control to get control, to use that phrase we talked about before, transferring ownership to them to get results. And I have formats for people to do that. But essentially, that's the three steps, CEO. That sounds absolutely fascinating. I've got a copy of the book that you've kindly given me pre the release date. I've got a couple of days off at the weekend. and I'm thoroughly looking forward to getting stuck into it. So if anybody's liking what they've heard so far, obviously, you can go onto Amazon. You can buy Start With What Works Now. It's been published for a little while. What about getting a hold of Committed Action? Yeah, so it's going live on the 7th of November, and we're going to do a promotion for the first week. So if you want to get it on Kindle, that'd be 99p or 99 cents, which is probably about 99p at current exchange rates, isn't it? Are we allowed to joke about things like that, Kevin? Who knows? We could all be using Bitcoin because Sterling's gone so far to pot. Who knows on the form of the last couple of weeks? I don't know what it'll cost you in Bitcoin, but you'll be able to choose a couple of currencies on Amazon anyway. And we'll put all the links in the show notes. Fantastic. Thanks. Andy, that has been fantastic. Thank you very much for being this week's guest on The Grow CFO Show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for asking me, Kevin.